Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello. Hello. You're listening to Is It Worth It, the film review podcast where we go out of our way to see all the films so you don't have to. My name's Craig Fields. And I'm David Long. And on today's show, we're going to be reviewing a number of films. What have we got going on today, David? On today's show, we'll be starting off with The Commuter with Liam Neeson. And then we'll be taking a look at Early Man with Tom Hiddleston, Maisie Williams, Eddie Redmayne. We'll also be having a look at Insidious The Last Key. Let's hope there are no more keys. I'll also be reviewing Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, with uh, Dwayne Johnson, Karen Gillan, Kevin Hart and Jack Black. And I'll be taking a look at 12 Strong, starring Chris Hemsworth and Michael Shannon. Uh, And then we've also got The Greatest Showman. Yes, so we'll both be having a look at The Greatest Showman, which stars Hugh Jackman and the ever-popular Zac Efron. Yeah, and there's a few other people. And there's Zendaya, I think she's a newcomer into the world of films, uh, did Spider-Man as well. Looking forward to reviewing that one as well. Um, we're always going to be doing our box office rundown, so that'll be coming up next after our little introduction. But first, we have some emails. Or one email, anyway. <laughs> we one have email. One email. I think we have more than one. There might have been two. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a few more emails that we've got, or tweets and things like that, but I think they're more relevant to the actual films that mm. we're going to be reviewing, so we'll list some of those out a bit later on. But the email that we've got is from none other than Rachel Finley. It says, uh, Dear David and Craig, After listening to your podcast last week, I was inspired by David to pull my finger out and finally get round to watching the Star Wars saga. And so I thought I'd share with you my experience of the first film in the series, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Uh, I use the word experience because I did feel like a bit of an ordeal from making the initial decision about which film to watch first, which I never considered uh, would even be an issue. To reading the bloody essay that you're presented with before you, (laughs) (laughs) can you get on with enjoying the film? Uh, It did not escape my notice that more happened in those few paragraphs that scroll past your eyes at just quicker than comfortable reading pace, with no warning, might I add. Then I actually did the two hours that followed. (laughs) And I did have to start the film again after realising too late that far from being a light bit of leisure reading, this was actually essential information to understanding the rest of the film. Uh, That said, despite my initial reservations, I found myself enjoying it. It did feel that I had I did feel that I had to concentrate a lot for the duration, even though not nothing much really happens. But overall, it was not an unpleasant experience, with the exception maybe of being subjected to that god-awful noise that Chewbacca makes. <laughs> <laughs> he made me want to rip my eardrums from my head. And whilst there was a distinct lack of female characters in the film, there were two I counted, one which was killed off within the first five minutes of her being introduced. I thought that Princess Leia did a sterling job of representing... Uh, she was effortlessly cool uh, and top-class heroine. Uh, Elsa top-class and... <laughs> heroine. <laughs> Elsa and Anna have nothing on Princess Leia. Overall, I would say that Star Wars Episode Four: <laughs> A New Hope is a distinctly average film which I couldn't help myself but enjoy. So thank you, David, for setting me on this path of enlightenment. 
Uh, I look forward to finally being able to hold my own in a Star Wars debate. I can only hope that the revelation that Darth Vader is Luke's father is not the only interesting thing that happens in this series. P.S. Lucky for you, David. I have seen Toy Story 2. Ah, brilliant. Rachel Finley. Thank you very much for that, Rachel. Um, so that which, which film did she actually watch? The first one that was ever created. So it starts... Uh, but the first one is like the fourth one, isn't it? Yeah, this it starts with episode see, four. Yeah. Goes on to five and six. And I just like the bit one, where you two, talked three. about class A heroin. I, I, I don't know if I misunderstood what was going on, but it sounds like Rachel had a good time. <laughs> but uh, sorry, Rachel. Um, no, yeah, please do get in touch. Um, any real big Star Wars fans out there, um, I feel like I am going to have to sit down and, and watch these now. Yeah, especially after Rachel has pulled her finger out. I think it's your time for you to pull. I've, ne- I've never inspired anyone in my life, so I'm pleased that Rachel has gone out and watched the first Star Wars. Indeed. There's me with the Indeeds again. We we, <laughs> we spoke about this. Craig has a, a problem with Indeed. I do. Indeed. <laughs> um, as always, please do get in touch with us. Our email address is mymailisworthit at gmail.com. So obviously we didn't mention the email address last time. We did say it was going to be in the description. Um, but that is the email address that we have set up for you to email us. I've just realised. What? Rachel Finley. Yes. Is the first person to email us. She is. So, Rachel, a prize is coming your way. 100%. I will get that sorted. Um, please do get in touch. And I don't know if she'll want me to let me know where she lives, but uh, give us a address where we can send the prize, and that will be coming to you via the slowest possible and cheapest means of post. <laughs> Have you decided what, uh, what the prize is yet? It's some sort of signed photograph of somebody or something. Is it going to be a signed photograph of us, like the, the podcast artwork with us signed? signed? Could be. It could be a signed photo of Matt Damon. We'll have to see how much it is. Rachel, would you actually want to have a signed picture of Matt Damon? We could get her a signed Chewbacca. Oh, yes. Or, or we could get one of those Chewbacca dolls, you know, yes. the, or the mask. Right, we'll the... think about this and we'll get that over to you, Rachel. Anyway, so moving swiftly on, we've got the box office uh, rundown and then we're going to go straight into the film reviews. So without further ado, welcome to Is It Worth It? The Film Review Podcast. Here we go. Oh, what is that noise? Oh, is it recording now? Yes. Oh, dear. That's all right. Um, hello, welcome back to the uh, box office rundown, and we're looking at the weekend of January 26th to January 28th, and we'll kick off with number one, which is Darkest Hour. It grossed $2.6 million at the weekend. It's now grossed $15.3 million. It's been in the uh, box office for three weeks, and last week it was at number two, and it is now at the top of the pile at number one. Yeah, so it's uh, it's moving up and down last couple of weeks um so it's doing very very well next up we've got coco in num in at number two uh which weekend grossed 2.3 million which is a total gross now of 8 million uh it's been in the box office for two weeks and last week it was at number one so it has dropped down one but i think that you know there's going to be a battle here between darkest hour and coco um yeah uh number three we have maze runner the death cure um this is straight in this is new um at number three, uh, it took 2.1 million at the weekend, which is its total gross as well, because it's only been out for a week. And Craig, you have seen this film, and I believe you'll be reviewing it next week. Uh, yes, I am. Um, saw it last night, so it's fresh in my mind. The review will be written and presented next week. Superb. Number four, Early Man, which you've also seen. 
Yeah. Um, that's been out a week, uh, gross two million. Uh, so that comes in at, uh, straight in at number four. And we're going to be reviewing that a bit later on. Uh, next up is The Greatest Showman. Um, this is one we've actually finally got around to seeing and we're going to be reviewing today. This took £1.9 million at the weekend and has grossed an incredible £19 million. Um, it was at number four last week, so it's moved down the pile a little bit. Um, I'm not sure if the sing-along version is included in this. Yeah, um, it's been in the news. The sing-along version is doing incredibly well. I mean, it's selling out massive theatres. The O2, I believe. Yeah. Um, in about March. So there are some people out there that are going to see this and <laughs> sing along. Uh, I will be discussing this later in the review. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, this is a this is a crowd pleaser. I'm, I can see this being in the top ten for for many weeks to come. Mm. If I'm honest, mm, me too. But I mean, look at what's at number six. I mean, you've got The Post by Steven Spielberg with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. This um, this has moved significantly down the down the box office. It I, was at number three. I think this this is a brilliant film. Uh, you reviewed it last week. I still haven't seen it. Um, so saying it's brilliant, you know, I suppose I'm not qualified to say that, but no, but it is. It is, a, anyway. it is a fantastic film. Um, just from the reviews I've read, that you know, t- t- uh, Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, it's a good film. I just think it might struggle a little bit. Um, just, just, just the nature of the film. I some people aren't going to be inspired to see it. No, I think there's going to be a lot of people who are debating whether to go and see The Darkest Hour or The Post, and I think a historic drama like these two. People are choosing the darkest hour, evidently, over over the post. But perhaps after people listen to other reviews and our reviews of of the post, they may end up going to see both if budgets allow. So um, hopefully that will continue to be in the box office and perhaps move up and down in the next few mm. weeks. Uh, after that, on number seven, we've got Jumanji: Welcome to the Jungle. This is grossed one point two million pounds and an incredible thirty four point one million, as it's been in the box office for six weeks. Uh, it's dropped down by one, so uh, by two, by uh, by two. Yes, sorry, it was uh, number five last week. Um, you've seen this? I have seen this. Uh, I enjoyed this, and I'll be telling you why later in the show. Excellent. Next, we have three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, at number eight. That took another one point two million at the weekend. It's grossed seven point three overall. Um, down one place, three weeks. Again, this is a film that. Just because of the name, and it's it's not something that jumps out at you. Um, whereas Jumanji: Welcome to the Jungle is proving very popular, so is Coco, um, and The Greatest Showman. But the th- three billboards, uh, Oscar nominated, uh, some brilliant acting performances in that. And then look at what's at number nine, Craig. Downsizing. Downsizing creeps in in its opening week at number nine. It's taken one point one million. It's it's not a good film. It wasn't worth going to see, and I think that says it all at the at the moment at its position in in the box office. I saw something on Facebook the other day. Someone posted, um, you know, looking for recommendations. Can anyone recommend a film? And there was about three comments. One of which was in bold: "Do not see downsizing" in big bold capital letters. So I think I I, I think people have gone to see it because it's got Matt Damon and the trailer looks quite cool. But I I don't think that'll be there next yeah, week. The, the trailers very different to what the actual film is and i think the problem that downsizing has is that when you are actually downsized and you're in that world with with the characters nothing actually looks 
any different than when you are in the in the real world mm. or in in the large world, and and therefore you're just watching Matt Damon sulk the entire <laughs> film. Yeah, yeah, and that and that's evidently the problem that people have mm. with it because it is just Matt Damon sulking. Um, next up, we've got an unusual film to see in the box office. I think not that we've studied the box office for very long, but mm. this is this is a new in at number ten. And it's called Padmavat, and it's an Indian film. Mm. Um, so it's an international film in the, in 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 the UK box office at the moment, and it's grossed nine. Uh, sorry, nine. Naught point nine million pounds, which is obviously nine hundred thousand pounds. Well done, Greg. That's some very <laughs> math. very. Yeah, that's that's GCSE level math. <laughs> well, let's be honest. It's probably not, is it? No, it's just me reading it as naught point nine million because that's yeah, what it is on the reception screen. Reception math. Yeah. Get a gold sticker. Um. Are you going to go and see this next week? I am. I might treat myself to a, a nice Indian dinner and <laughs> and then go out full of very delicious, well-cooked Indian meats. I might go for a lamb rogan josh, a bit of alagobi. You're going to go out on your own? Matt Alpineer. Well, I might, enjoy, might invite you. All right. Yeah, sounds all right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're having an Indian next week and then we're going to see Padmavat. I've seen the trailer for it. It looks quite good. It's a historical... Um, remake of something that happened i i have only seen the trailer i'm not really sure i haven't even read it's the a historical remake yes. of something that happened craig fields there you go yes that's not really <laughs> that's good not, is it not, that's not great um, <laughs> so if you want to see a, a, a historical remake of something that happened something happened they it's historical and they remade it yeah there you go. straight in at number 10 yeah um, so we seem to have lost a few things that were in the box office last week. We've lost the commuter. So Neeson yeah. <laughs> was at six last week and he's now out of that box office charts. He, Liam has gone. We are reviewing the commuter. That's our first review coming up very shortly. Mm. We've lost Insidious to Last Key. Thank God. Yep. Um, we're reviewing that later on as well. And that was at eight. Um, we've finally lost Star Wars out of the top ten of the box office chart. Um, that was in at nine. Pitch Perfect as well was gone. That was at ten. Mm. Mm. And we've had some new releases as well that have come out that haven't even made the top 10 of the box office. Yeah, um, so the the new release which you've seen and you are reviewing in today's show mm. is 12 strong and this has performed poorly. Um, it's currently 13th in the box office taking £402,261 to be precise. Um, and it doesn't really appear that this is a film that's drawing in big audiences. And I think your review will probably explain why it's not doing too mm. well i think there are problems with this film um and i think it's potentially going to annoy quite a lot of people from what you've told me about it yeah i uh, yeah we'll go into that a bit later on but i it'll be interesting to see whether or not this is going to move up in the box office after being out for a bit um it's, it's certainly going to please a lot of certain a certain range of people who enjoy war films mm. um but we will delve into this a bit later on. So that is it for our box office rundown. Should I quickly run down them again or are we done? Yeah, run it, run down. So number one, Darkest Hour. Number two, Coco. Number three, Maze Runner, The Death Cure. Uh, number four is Early Man. At five, we have The Greatest Showman. The Post is at six. Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle is at seven. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is at eight. Downsizing with a very small Matt Damon is at nine. And Padmavat. At 10. So first up on our review list is The Commuter. This is another Liam Neeson film where he goes out of his way to beat people up, essentially. Very cool. um, yeah. 
you know, this is another Taken 1, another Taken 2, another Taken 3, another non-stop, another unknown. This is Liam Neeson doing what he's seemingly was good at, but maybe not anymore. Um, I, there was There's elements of this film that I really enjoyed, and we'll go straight into that because I really enjoyed the opening sequence i i really liked when how the seasons were changing and you know he's repeatedly waking up doing the same routine with his family um you know going into work on the train getting to grand central station where that final sequence opens up whereas everyone's moving really fast around him and he's walking at normal pace and i really thought that was really well done really beautifully shot but then we begin to fall into these like realms of similarities where neeson is suddenly plunged into an impossible task after a pretty shitty day at the office hmm. let's be honest um he's the next cop now life insurance salesman ironically he's been given this hypothetical task would you do one little thing on this train uh in exchange for 100 grand and after the day he's had i think he's pretty intrigued and he's gonna he's gonna take this this hypothetical what? What? question and turn it into a reality why is he intrigued craig he has been Fired. He has, he has, he has been lost fired. his job today. He's been Donald Trump. He's been Lord Sugared. He has been fired. Mm. Should we listen to a clip? Yes, let's do that. What if I asked you to do one little thing? It's something that you are uniquely qualified to do. It's something that's meaningless to you but it could profoundly affect an individual on this train would you do it i'd want to know what kind of thing does it matter well i think it does and you would never know the consequences of what you did then why would i do it because there would be a reward uh-huh so uh what's the reward In the bathroom, carriage two, maybe there is a package. It's hidden. And inside that package is $25,000. That money is yours, plus another 75 cash. If you do this one little thing. I don't understand. Someone on this train does not belong. So this is where it starts to fall apart, I think. You know, they've set up this this great thing to happen um, on this train. Um, and then then you get to realise that actually they're going to take that all away because actually they're going to kidnap your wife as well. And, and this this element where we're going to give you some money to do this thing is completely thrown out of the window. Mm. What is the point of even building all of that up, him losing his job for him to then just have to try and save these people? his wife and his child like it, it makes not absolutely no sense you know i thought it was really moving quite well you know despite the weirdness of all the people on the train seemingly knowing each other and communicating with each other and talking and saying hey how's, how's your day going oh, i see you all the time nobody does that nobody does that when they commute never ever Ah, oh, so silly but anyway still nobody seems to know what's going on in this film at all even neeson um especially neeson um, but we're we're also incredibly unaware of why any of this is happening. You know, some might say it's a good thing. You know, we're left in suspense. Um, but Neeson begins to fight just random people on the train, <laughs> and 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 nobody bats an eyelid. You begin to feel somewhat 
detached from from the entire experience and you're sort of no longer invested in this character whatsoever. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the the whole thing was filmed at Pinewood Studios and they built like four carriages to represent the entire train. Mm. And it, it really does feel like it's a small train. No, you know, Neeson is able to run from one end of the train to the other in a matter of moments. It's, <laughs> yes, it's, that's very true, yeah. It's just ridiculous. Um, um, what do you think, David, about, about the film? So as as you've explained, what what we have here is we, we we do have that beautiful opening scene, and it is very good where you see that monotonous task of going mm. to work every day and the seasons changing around him, and then he's fired, and we get the whole "I'm sixty years old, I uh, I've got to put my child through college. What the hell should I do?" You know, you feel a bit sorry for <coughs> excuse me, bit of a cold. Um, you feel a bit sorry for for Neeson, and then. You know, you think, you know, what's going to happen in this film? You know, he's just going to take the train home and that's the film over. But no, it's a Liam Neeson film. So we have this mysterious woman who seems to have the ability of teleportation because she does. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Yeah, she does. She does just seemingly appear out of absolutely nowhere. Uh, Vera Farmiga. um, And basically, this clip has been included or this plot line has basically been included for the purpose of the trailer. Because it all sounds very good. It's quite a well-shot scene, actually. Mm. Would you do this hypothetical thing if this happened? Um, but these hy- hypothetical questions actually soon become reality. I mean, I'd like to touch upon the fact that Liam Neeson is a fantastic actor. You know, he's done some phenomenal films. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In the past. But his age is of a concern for me in this film. Because Liam Neeson is now 65 years of age. Which, thinking about it, actually means that he would be in receipt of a state pension if he was living in the UK, and therefore probably elephant... Elephant? (laughs) Elephant. Eligible. Eligible for some sort of discounted travel. So fundamentally what you have is an OAP (laughs) who is just... who is An old age pensioner who's just been sacked (laughs) from Mm. his job. He's going home looking very sorry for himself, and then suddenly a mysterious woman offers him a lot of money. And then this old man... And sorry, Liam, I mean, Liam Neeson is in fine fettle. Don't get me wrong. The point I'm trying to make is, does it have to be Liam Neeson at his age? Is given this task and then basically he just proceeds to assault people. Many people are beaten up. And what you have to understand, Craig, is that most of these people have had a hard day at work and they just want to go home. And then you have Liam Neeson. What's in the bag? You know, just interrogating these poor people. People end up getting injured. Um, And I must confess, there's one scene that I want to talk about that's particularly amusing. Um, where Liam Neeson proceeds to use an instrument as a weapon. An instrument, yeah. Uh, yeah. And and in the same scene, we also have gunfire, window smashing. You know, the whole carriage is completely destroyed. You know, and, and no one else on the train bats an eye. Wasn't there a pickaxe? I mean, yes, so also, if you, for anyone who's travelled on trains, you have those little, little hammers. They're about six inches long, six to eight inches long, about four inches wide that are used to break windows. But on this train, it's about three foot long and about a foot wide. It's like a bloody pickaxe. <laughs> and you have this ridiculous scene where Neeson and another passenger are fighting other, fighting each other with pickaxes and instruments. Um, gunshots are going off. We must add that he's, they're both alone in one carriage. Yeah. And next door is, is everybody else. Everyone else reading their paper, listening to their iPod as these two men basically kill each other in the in the adjoining carriage. This ridiculous scene, you know, where there's hammers, flying instruments, bits of upholstery, springs, bits of metal, the windows <laughs> smashed. Total carnage. Mm. Um, you know, Neeson does a good job in terms of the um, the fighting scenes, mm. but they are ridiculous. Um, 
and it's it's just a confused film because it and and it, in a in a way, it is entertaining because mm. because it made us laugh of how how ridiculous it was. It's entertain. Look, if you if you if if you want to go to the cinema to see a sort of um, you know a seriously well scripted thriller, this isn't a film for you. You know, it's not well scripted. Um, it's a bit shambolic, but it's entertaining in the fact that it is so ridiculous. And it appears they've set it up for a sequel. Yeah. And that doesn't give anything away. No, um, no, no. They have certainly set this up for a sequel, but we really hope between us that they don't I mean, what's, commute what, again. Yeah, I mean, what's he going to do? Is it going to be the Eurostar, perhaps the bullet train in Japan? I mean, what, what the hell can we expect from mm. the commuter too? Who knows? Let me put the question to you. Mm. Is it worth it? No. No, I don't think it's worth it either. I think this is something you can wait until it comes out on Netflix, Amazon, or even on DVD. To I don't even know if it's worth the ten pound purchase, really. No, look, I mean, if if, if you're going to watch this film, wait until it comes out on DVD. Wait until you can get it for you know three, four quid, or or stream it. So that's our review of the Commuter. Um, heading on straight over into our next film. Here we go. So next up, we have got Early Man. This is another Aardman production, uh, and it's directed by Nick Park. Um, I believe they've created something very special here. This is a really, really fantastic kids' film um, that they've they've put together. Um, it's another one of those sort of clay animations, I suppose. Um, and this one is set in the dawn of time, uh, when prehistoric creatures and woolly mammoths are, are roaming the earth. Uh, and the stone men and Bronze Age men are living side by side in, in some respects. Uh, and it begins with an, a meteor that hits the Earth. And it creates a rather large I don't know, uh, meteor. What do, you call, what do you call them? It's a crater. A crater, that's it. Um, but the Stone Age men, they like to call it their valley, where they, where they reside. And it's all, after a couple of hundred years, it's all really rather beautiful and trees and animals roaming around in there. And these Stone Age men, they like to eat rabbits. <laughs> yep, they, they hunt rabbits. They don't, they don't eat anything else. They've sort of lost touch of what they used to eat before um, and what they used to hunt. Um, you know, they used to hunt woolly mammoths and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, well, after the meteor actually hit, going back a couple of hundred years, the, the early men that actually saw this happen discovered that the meteor was in the shape of a football. And when they, and when they saw this, they started kicking the football about. And that was how football was invented. Um, but skipping back another hundred years, going back to where we, were, we actually left off, um, the footballers, they no longer exist. They've forgotten about the football heritage. Um, and obviously they just hunt rabbits and that's it. Um, we've got some great characters in this one. We've got, um, Tom Hiddleston playing Lord Noof, who is one of the Bronze Age leaders. Um, you've got, uh, Maisie Williams who plays Guna. Uh, you've got Eddie Redmayne who plays Doug, who is our main protagonist in this film. Um, and Doug seemingly goes on an adventure basically to, um, try and save his, his home. So the Bronze Age people have invaded and they've pushed them out of their, their little valley where everything's lovely and, and brilliant. Um, and, they, and they've got to try and win back their land. How do they win that, uh, their land, David? Have a guess. A game of football. A game of football, yeah. So this is, this is a really inventive and really brilliantly funny kids film. Um, and I sat there in the cinema on my own, pretty much. Nobody else in there because it was a very early morning viewing in the middle of the week. 
Sounds tragic. It does, actually. But it, I really enjoyed it. I sat there and I laughed at the right moments. I, I cried. No, I didn't cry. I, I had emotional attachment with the characters as well. And, and, and it strikes a chord with a lot. I'm just going to think it's going to strike a, lot, a chord with a lot of a lot of people who are going to view it. So this is a, a good children's film, suitable for adults as well. Yeah, definitely. Families. Families, without a doubt. Um, and which is uh, it's evident on the box office of where it is at the minute as well. Um as to as to how good it's doing, you know, you can see already, you know, it's straight in at number four. And I think after the weekend um, coming, it's going to do even better. And I, I hope it's going to move up further. What I really liked about it as well was that how like the really personal touch of that, how you can actually see some fingerprints on the clay models of, of the characters and stuff. And I thought that was a really nice touch, but it's blended really well into the background as well with the CGI sort of backdrops as well. Um, I thought that was a really nice way of blending those two sort of uh, animation skills together. Um, essentially, if if budget would allow, there's obviously two films out at the minute that I think are going to be competing with each other. So you've got Early Man and you've also got Coco, two, you know, pretty good animations going on. Um, if you're going to ask me the question now. Would you like the question? Yeah. Craig, early man, is it worth it? Yeah, it's 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 worth it. But if you want to go, if you're trying to decide whether you want to take your family to see Coco or Early Man, I'd say it, try and see both if you can. Not obviously at the same time or at the, <laughs> at the, at the, at the know, same, same time, time. Sort of on the same yeah, get, day. Get, get, go to a go to a cinema, get a split screen. <laughs> no, if you want to see it, see them both somehow. Don't try and do it on the same day because I think it probably will overwhelm the kids with emotion. Uh, and they're two very different topics, obviously. You know, I mean, Coco is definitely a hard, hardcore, um, emotional impact film. You know, with with a lot of you have to recommend one. You yeah, I know. Both. Um, but if no, but if you can f- the following weekend go and take them to see a, a different one. Um, I think that stop be planning really, other families really weekends. I'm sorry, <laughs> um, if budget will allow though, if you can do it, do it. Um, but yeah, I'd really recommend going and seeing this film in the cinema because it's a good family outing to go on. I think and. Even though I went on my own, I I could have taken, you know, nephews and nieces. But our viewers want to know which one is better, Craig, Coco or Early Man. They need an answer. They're two distinctly different films. I think um, Coco has a completely different message in it, and it perhaps might be for an older range of children um, because of the themes of death and and. and so younger like kids, Early Man, teenagers, Coco. Well, maybe not teenagers, but you know, you're entering the realms of like. 10 year olds and you know 8 to 10 that's really not a decent range but Coco is probably that one that you take those sort of kids to younger than 8 might not understand some of the the, the um, more adult themes of Coco um, but early man it's you know you can take any age kid to see that teenagers as well probably would enjoy it but it's not going to be a film that they're going to want to see they're going to want to go and see the other ones that are out which we're going to talk about later insidious probably commuter they're all the ones that the, the teenagers are going to probably want to see um so yeah go and take early man don't go and take early man go and take the kids to see early man um coco for the older kids thank you <laughs> uh, what we've we got coming up after this then we've got insidious i think insidious the last key is the next review okay let's head on over to insidious welcome back uh we are now looking at insidious the last key which is the fourth installment in the insidious series 
And we're really not going to mess around with this review. We're going to get straight down to business. So, Craig, you can ask me the question immediately. Is it worth it? No. Um, <laughs> Why not? It, this this was a disappointing film on so many levels. Mm. Um, so I was going into the uh, cinema expecting it to be bad. And I still came out really disappointed. I mean, really disappointed. In my opinion, this is an awful movie um craig actually liked it more than i did um but i thought this was a terrible film everything about it um i thought the the plot was weak the script was poor i thought some of the acting was really shaky it was very very predictable and the first two films were directed by james wan and i'm a huge fan of the first insidious film i thought it was disturbing i thought it was beautifully shot it had a great soundtrack the second one was very very solid james wan didn't direct the third and it went downhill but this was a car crash and in my opinion it was preying on the success of the first two films and if it wasn't in court if it wasn't called insidious the last key it would never even have been made and what made the first two films good was the concept about um traveling about entering the fifth dimension and getting stuck there with you know various demons and ghosts and ghouls and goblins or whatever else is in that realm and it was good and um, the first film dalton uh, and that horrible monster and the, the creepy music i thought it was just very well made but this was bad predictable very slow paced large chunks of the film where nothing happened mm. um what is the actual film about? What's the synopsis of this well, film? Okay, well, well, the synopsis of the film is basically we have Elise, um, who is played by Lynn Shay. Yep. And for those of you who watched the first um, few films, she is this... Would you describe her as a mystic? She's mm, sort of a... Psychic? Psychic. She can communicate with demons and things that aren't of this world. And... Basically, she returns to her childhood home. So we, the film starts with a flashback and we see her childhood, which is rather unpleasant um, and inappropriate, actually, I think. Some of the scenes are they're just pretty brutal. Mm. Um, Not she, in a scary way where no, it's supposed no, to be a so horror she, film. She's uh, physically abused as a child and the film shows this and it shows it pretty full on. Um, and I just don't think that adds a lot to the film it's just violence for the sake of violence so we see these flashbacks to when she was a child and her father beating her and we see that she has these powers to communicate with the dead or demons or or, or, or like i said beings that aren't of this of this realm and jump forward however many years and she receives a phone call about someone that needs her help and she suddenly realizes that the phone call is coming from the house where she used to live as a child and she goes back there to try and help this person get rid of the demons, etc. And she takes two buffoons with her, um, Specs and Tucker, who were in the first two films, the tech guys. You liked them in the first two. They films, were great in the first in the first film, particularly. You know, they were those tech guys who turned up with all the equipment that checked that these weren't hallucinations caused by you know leaking light sockets and and this kind of stuff. And they had cameras that used different coloured lenses to take photographs of rooms and it was good. It added to the script. This time, they, 
I mean, you, you'll touch upon this. They were just weird. Mm. Should we listen to a clip with them in it? And then do we have to? Well, let's yeah, let's listen to a clip and then we'll um we'll carry on with where we're going. Superb. So uh, obviously there's not much to go on with that clip because it's but I mean from what you can hear those two buffoons in the first one were able to create tension with with what they were doing there communicating with Elise being able to sort of give you a little bit of info um and and the way they reacted was quite shocked in this film however they didn't act like that. They didn't act as, as scared as, as what we can see on the screen. Mm. They they were very much so used to it. And that suspense that they used to build up in the other films was no longer there. Um, I think so anyway. Yeah, it, it was bizarre. So Elise sort of said, you know, I'm going back to my childhood home. This is something I want to do on my own. So you're thinking, oh, thank God, they're not going to come along. And then they turn up in this huge black van with some sort of like equivalent of a Ghostbusters theme symbol on the side, don't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this van is, you know, kitted out like the bloody International Space Station, you know, so they've gone from not going to suddenly having this van that's full of equipment, you know, like an FBI sort of van with, you know, machines, and and they go down to this house, and there are, I counted four moments in this film that are cringeworthily bad. So you're literally going... Oh, now you that... look, you looked at me at these moments, and I was just shaking my head in disappointment because they were either telling the same joke that they'd said previously that bombed. Yep, yep, they did that. They told a joke that absolutely bombed, and then did it again. And then, then they were just incredibly creepy and pervy as well. Mm, it so was bad. Elise's nieces are in the film, which you would probably see in the trailer. So I'm not spoiling that for you. And these two guys who are in their mid thirties, maybe even late thirties. Are hitting on them, mm. and they look about fifteen. They could be older. I think they're probably about seventeen, eighteen. They're late teens at the. They've got the to most. be. Yeah, and they they were really creepy with them and really perverted, and and nobody in the film even cared about that. Mm. They were just like, this is this is supposed to be funny, so we'll let him get away with it. But it 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 wasn't funny, and it just came across as really perverted and really didn't add anything to the film at all. Yeah, and um, that that clip that we played is basically a moment where Elise is in the house on her own and you have the two buffoons, as we're calling them. They've attached a camera to her and they're sort of saying, it's in front of you, it's in front of you. And we can actually see this woman in front of her. Like very, very clearly. And there's no, it doesn't build any suspense. And then what do we have? We have the, you know, the, you know, the silly soundtrack and a face popping up. Oh, bloody hell, I'm so predictable, predictable, predictable. You could actually sit there and go three, two, one, face. It was like that. It was just so predictable. Um, and I was really disappointed. The only saving grace of this film was the ending. And I say that simply because I could leave. 
Um, and they certainly haven't set this up for any other more any films. No, really. I think I think they've they've thrown the towel in here. And like I said, look, I would recommend the first two Insidious films to anyone. I think they're brilliant horror films. But if I'm honest, Insidious three not worth it. And this, do not waste your money seeing this in the cinema. It's a very very bad film. Mm. But there are some certain demographic certain demographic of people that will go and see this film. Uh, as we witnessed in the cinema when we went to see it, we went on a Sunday afternoon-ish, sort of maybe about four o'clock. No, it was a bit late. It was sort of Sunday evening, about ten past seven, I think it was. All right, it doesn't really matter. But but just, there was still there was a bunch of teenagers in there who obviously liked Insidious or wanted to go to the cinema to see something. It's a fifteen. Um, and they were the worst audience <laughs> I've ever experienced. They were awful. There was one guy whose phone rang in the middle of the film and answered the phone only for other people in the cinema to attempt to get off the phone. Quite a great... I mean, there was at least two occasions where I thought there was going to be a fight. Mm. Um, I feel slightly bad because I was due to see this film on my own and I dragged Craig along and the most entertaining part was... Well, the most entertaining slash annoying part, I found it more entertaining. Craig was just... I mean, thoroughly annoyed. I can see him now. There's steam still coming off of him. I hated it. But the the audience really... We had people taking selfies. Now, look, I, I, I enjoy a selfie, but in the cinema, really? Get I mean, off your phone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we heard that. Get off the phone. And then we had that bizarre shh. You know, that, that ridiculous shushing that's actually louder than people talking. Um, rustling. Mm. Um, I, I, I also just didn't enjoy... Being in a in a room full of people who have paid money to come to the cinema and just ignored the film, people were taking pictures of the actual show that was going yeah, on, the actual yeah. film, to post on their Facebook, whatever they were going to post it on, whatever it is, their their new that new thing that Facebook do where you can add pictures like Snapchat. Um, I just thought it was stupid that if you were coming to see a film that you actually sit there and watch the film. As you can tell, 45-year-old Craig is very annoyed with the youth of today. I am. I I, I get off your phone. I think, I think what we're trying to say is if you would like to see Insidious The Last Key, beware of the fact that if you go and see this like we did at the weekend on an evening, it's going to be full of teenagers and it would seem that well, the cinema we were in, it just descended into a bit of a farce. Mm, it was just chaos. Um, but no, uh, a very bad film. Um, and I really, there's not a lot I can say at all about it that's good. The, um, the only redeeming features that I felt it had were the cinematography. I quite liked that. Um, the soundtrack was okay at times, but it did obviously try to enhance itself by making it scary at the points mm. where you were. it was predictable. And mm. it didn't actually add anything. There were moments. I think there was one moment where I jumped, and that was near the beginning, actually. Yeah. And uh, I mean, from the, after that, from the clip you heard, the soundtrack isn't bad. But the problem is, the soundtrack is there to enhance what's on the screen, and when what you've got on the screen is rubbish, it doesn't do that. It, it doesn't do much. No. Um, a personal highlight for me was though there was there was one point in the film, if you remember, Craig, where something was revealed um, again. Hmm. and uh, there was this person in front of us. Literally, the cinema was quiet, and on the screen, this thing came up, and he was, oh, my God, oh, no, not another one. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very good impression. Just this, this, this person was so shocked at the the, rev- the revealing of yet another something. I won't say what it is to spoil the film, but no, listen, um, 
Not worth it. Not worth it. Not worth it. But uh, I I did enjoy seeing Craig have a mental breakdown because he was so angry at people's behaviour. It was it was a sight to behold. Mm. Um, If you're going to go to the cinema, just don't go on your phone. Don't talk to other people. Don't rustle all the popcorn that you've got really loudly. Don't shush other people who are being noisy because it's just louder than everybody else. Just sit there in silence and watch the film. Rules with Craig Fields. No, 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 there are. I think there are rules when you go to the cinema. And Craig and is a at least very, obey some of them. A very serious cinema goer. Yeah, I, I brought some sweets the other day, and he just he was horrified. Actually, you bought two burgers with you. Well, I I did, and I said you're not going in there and eating those smelly things in there. Uh, I I must say, going to the cinema with Craig, it's a bit like I don't know military experience. Yeah. But Insidious, is it worth it? No, don't go. Um, especially don't go with Craig. He will, be, <laughs> he will get very angry. If you, no, no rustling, no fun. All right, shall we swiftly move on to our next film that we're going to review? Let's do that. Uh, this one's for you, I believe. This is Jumanji. Ah, so we're just we're going straight in on. Oh, yeah, why not? We're just going to go straight in. Let me rustle the. Last week, Craig gave me some paperwork. This week, I have more of it. Craig likes paperwork. Where the bloody hell's Jumanji then? Oh, here we go. So, um, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, starring Dwayne Johnson, Kevin Hart, Jack Black and Karen Gillan. Now, for me, I was... I said last week uh, in the box office rundown that I was very, very surprised to see Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle in the box office. And I retract that statement. Having seen the film, I am not surprised to see it in the, in the box office in the top ten. Because this is... A very, very good reboot of the brilliant uh, original Jumanji, which obviously starred Robin Williams and came out in 2000, sorry, 1995. So was it actually a reboot or was it more of a, a sequel slash reimagination? Well, it's it's more of a reboot, but it, you wouldn't have to have actually seen the original Jumanji to understand this. So um, it's basically being created for a new generation of, yes. of kids. What is interesting, actually, in the original Jumanji, the uh, board game actually ends up on a beach. And in this film, the opening scene, the person finds the board game on a beach. The board game then actually becomes a video game. Um, We don't get any explanation as to why that happens, but it does. Mm, Um, So it's sort of a modern twist. And basically what what happens is you have... um, a group of four characters, all very, very different. So you've got one guy who's um, very big, very muscular, sporty. You've got another girl who's sort of, you know, the cheerleading type, very, very beautiful. Then you've got the geeky girl who's he's, who's equally attractive, but she doesn't really know it and she's very self, sort of, quite secluded. And then finally mm. you've got the sort of fourth character, which is a geeky boy. And so you've got these four different characters that all end up coming together because they basically, for different reasons, get detention whilst they're at school. And they're given a fairly monotonous task of removing paper clips or staples from magazines for the purpose of recycling. And whilst they're doing this, they discover a video game console and the Jumanji game. And a bit like the original film where Robin Williams' character was sucked into the board game, what we have in this film is these characters are sucked into the video game um and it and it and it really does work so each of the characters um 
select an avatar um and then basically when they are sucked into the game they become that avatar and what we have is we have Dwayne Johnson, Kevin Hart, Jack Black and Karen Gillan who basically play the avatars but they're not just playing the avatars they're also playing the original characters right okay should we go to a clip yes let's go to a clip Who are you? Who is she? Who are you guys? Okay, what the hell is going on? Ow! Yo, Spencer. Who's this? Jumanji. You pick a character and then you're that person in the game. Should we play? What's happening to your head? What's wrong with you? Oh my god. My god. Fridge? Yeah, I'm Fridge. Who are you? me spencer martha yeah i think we got sucked into the game and we've all become the avatars we chose so that means bethany i'm an overweight middle-aged man so that's our clip from jumanji um, and i think that clip evidently really shows what the film's about there you know they get sucked into the game and they get into their Avatars, and obviously Jack Black is the middle-aged forty-year-old man who's actually played by. Uh, she is actually Bethany, isn't it? The, the the attractive girl, was it? Yes. So you've got Bethany, who we have scenes at the start of the film where she's taking lots of selfies. She's constantly on FaceTime, and she is obviously notably stunning. And obviously, she gets sucked into the game, and the avatar she picks is Jack Black, and. It's very, very funny. And Spencer, who's the sort of geeky guy, becomes Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So he's suddenly still himself, but in this incredible body. Fridge, who's the guy I was talking about originally, who's the big muscular footballer, becomes Kevin Hart, who's obviously (laughs) quite small. Um, And then Martha, who's that sort of geeky girl, becomes Karen uh, Gillan, who's absolutely stunning. Um and what I really like about this film is I was terrified, I mean genuinely terrified, that this was going to be a car crash. But it isn't. It's really, really good. And it's um, it's really good because it's well cast. Dwayne Johnson is very, very good. And they play on the fact that Dwayne Johnson is a bit one-dimensional in a lot of his films. And they actually, he actually takes the mick out of himself. So, okay. so it works really well. So his avatar is the sort of the strong superhero. But the person inside his avatar is this quite scared geeky boy and we see the the development of both characters so you get to know his avatar but you also get to know spencer better um and like i said dwayne the rock johnson he takes the mick out of himself a little bit so throughout the whole film you're not taking it too seriously because it doesn't take itself too seriously kevin hart is kevin hart he's quick fired he's funny jack black is is hilarious in this so you've got Jack Black, you know, I don't know how old he is. He must be in his 40s now, but he's prancing around like a like a teenage girl. And Karen Gillan as well plays um, Martha. So you've got this sort of geeky girl who's inside this sort of almost like superhero woman who's got, uh, I think she has the ability of dancing, dance fighting is one of her. Um, <laughs> okay. One of her uh, abilities. So you see in the start of the film, they work out what their abilities are. So, like on a game, their abilities pop up. So, it's like speed, agility, strength. So, they all have those. Um, And 
like in the original film where you have to complete the game um you have that's what happens here so they're in the video game and basically to get out of it they have to complete the game so they have to go through a series of tasks they have to go through a series of levels and it all works really well um i'm not a big gamer but if you are you'll enjoy this there's some very very funny moments you know where it shows you like glitches in games and also the the characters in games that so if you if you repeat a level a number of times you always have that same scene don't you that sets up that level yeah so we see that a few times where some of the characters say the same things again no matter what you ask them um the action's very very good um the special effects are good the pace of the film is good but m- really why it works as a film is because you've got two two stories going on at once really so you're getting to know the avatars, but you're also getting to know the characters, and you and and you're just cheering them on, really. My only criticism of it, which I said to you before, was the fact that I didn't like the sexualization of some of the characters, particularly the female characters. Um, so I think this film is a it's a twelve A, isn't it? Yeah. So, like I said to you when I left the, the cinema, may, maybe I'm behind the times but i don't know if some of the themes in this and some of the scenes in this would be appropriate for a 12 year old i i just don't know um certainly not below 12 I, it's a 12 a look i wouldn't be taking a, a nine or a 10 year old to see this film um because the real sort of sexualization of the female characters comes through martha's character who's played by karen gillen in in the game mm. um and she's wearing sort of hot pants and a vest top. And we have, like I said, her one of her um, strengths is dance fighting. And, and the scenes are good, but basically you have a woman wearing not a lot of clothing, dancing whilst beating up people. And the camera focuses on parts of her body, if you know what I mean. Mm. And I, look, I mean, it makes enjoyable watching, I'm not going to lie, as a fully grown man. It's in, it, 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 it's it's nice to watch, but in the set in at the same time it isn't because it's like why? Why is this necessary? What yeah? Because th- this film is funny, the action's good, the script's good, the plot's good. Why did it have to sexualize stuff? Because there are so the relationships form between the av- between the avatars and obviously ultimately between the the people who have been sucked into the game, outside the game, inside the game, and that develops well. But it is all a bit sexual. Um, and there's another scene as well where Jack Black, uh, who is Bethany, has to um, urinate <laughs> for the first time. So she's obviously having to urinate as a man. And we get a fairly detailed description of what that's like. Um, and again, that's reasonably funny, but I'm just saying for a 12A, um, maybe I'm just old now and boring. No, no, I think you're right. In Hollywood, uh, in these big films and stuff, there are the sexualization of women um, put into these films for obviously to make money or get people to tit- mm. titillate it, I think is the word we want to use. Uh, it goes back to, to Insidious as well, the scene that we've spoken about, but we didn't speak in the review, where the the young niece is laying on the floor and she's it focuses on, on, on her breasts moving up and down yeah. Um, in a way that is obviously not helping the film at all. It's just there. Yeah, she's basically it's... being possessed by a demon, and instead of focusing on her face, they just zoom in on her breasts, which are obviously 
bouncing around all over the place. Um, it's, 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 it's why? Why was that necessary? It's... So look, Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle is a brilliant film. Teenagers will love it. Adults will love it. Um, I, w- I would say it's a good family film. Um, some of the scenes might, if you're watching it with your kids, might be a little bit awkward. But as a 12A, I wouldn't be taking a 9 or a 10-year-old to see this film just because of the summer sexual themes. Um, all the performances are very good. Uh, it's funny. It's well-scripted. It's worth seeing in the cinema because of the special effects and the sound effects. So I would 100% recommend this. So, Craig, you can ask me the question. Is it worth it? Yes, it is. Excellent. Fantastic. So that was our review of Jumanji, or David's review of Jumanji. Uh, we're now going to move on um, to 12 Strong. So we'll be back in a moment. Um, hold your horses. Nay. Welcome back. Uh, we're now going to have a review of 12 Strong by the wonderful Craig Fields. Craig, please do tell us about 12 Strong. Okay, so this isn't a film that I would generally pick to go and see. Um, I'm not a fan of war films that are pro-America, I suppose. You know, I've watched the trailer and I thought, I'm not really keen on this. But I went and saw it anyway for the sake of this podcast. Um, And basically what this film is about is um, after September 11th, um, we've got Mitch Nelson, who wants to lead his US Special Forces into Afghanistan um, for an extremely dangerous mission. Um, You know, they they have to make a partnership with um, a northern alliance to take down the Taliban, um, and essentially this is this is supposedly based on on a, a real story. Um, you know, there's there's a statue outside of um, where the twin towers were um, of the the leader um, Mitch Nelson um, riding horseback. Um, it's it's a great statue. If you have a look on Google, you can see it. Um, uh, essentially, these these guys had to ride. There was twelve of them, obviously by the name of the film, twelve strong. Had to ride twelve horses, essentially into battle. So, in, in essence, this almost takes on the persona of of a western. Um, but the but the difference is, this is a modern day film um, where twelve soldiers have to take on, as I said. Um, Al Qaeda, the Taliban, um, whilst fight, whilst making these alliances with with um, with these Af- Afghan um, warlords, essentially, um, but it comes across as as very very pro America, and I don't think it's going to appeal to the to to the left wing, to the well to the left wing um, at all. Um, have you got any thoughts on on that so far, from what I've told you? Well, I haven't I haven't seen this film. No. Um but I do want to see it. Um and from what you've said and from the trailer, this looks like a film that is really going to appeal to a certain type of people and it's probably going to appeal to the Trump voter, to the Republican in America because it fundamentally sounds like what we've got here is 12 Americans who are the good guys fighting a load of uh, terrorists who are the bad guys and it's an excuse to show how great America is, how great America's troops are, etc, etc um, and and in that sense it's it's going to annoy people because the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, everything that's happened in the Middle East has caused nothing but shit for 
a lot of people, a mm. lot of families, lost loved ones. Um, it, it's caused political carnage, really. Mm. And whatever you are, left wing, right wing, no wing, you have an opinion on the Iraq war. And this, to me, just looks like a film that has been designed basically to, you know, it's like a cattle prod, really, just to sort of anger people, really, or, or, or in, invoke some sort of response. Yeah, no, certainly, it certainly has. Because um, from my point of view, it it does so, you know, obviously the evil is evil, but they make it really evil and they have to put in a scene that really makes it come across as these are the bad guys. These are definitely the bad guys. And and the Americans are, these are really the good guys. These really are the good guys. That's basically what they're saying throughout the whole film. Um, and for me, obviously there's going to be bad guys on, on, on the bad side, but there's also going to be some good guys. And they do actually touch upon this very, very so slightly in, in the film. Like they say that people that are, that were on the warlord side switch sides to the Taliban, but they do so because, you know, they've stolen their land. They have no choice to do so. But other than mentioning that one sentence in the film, yeah, that is the right way around. So they, they were on the warlord side, then they switch to the Taliban, then they switch back and they do so. They go, you know, every week they could be changing mm. changing sides. And they do so because they have literally no choice to do so. Um, and and, and But that, they touch upon that very, very little. And, and I think that was something that they missed out on there because after that they don't mention it again and then they start killing everyone essentially does 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 the film touch upon the afghani or iraqi people at all or is this just a look at terrorists um i think it does think with it... with the warlords the the people that they are fighting with to help there is a nice connection that is built up with the americans and and those people um but it, it's really difficult to be able to review a film like this because, in my opinion, it feels like it's a pointless film to be telling now, at this point in time, when there is so much shit still going down. It's just going to invoke more people and, and more rage, I think. Um, but, you know, it's it's a film that could have come 10 years later. Than that, you know, this is this is before they go to war properly. Um, and, and And that was a pointless war, but, you know... All wars are pointless, essentially, but this feels like a pointless film at this time um, for a pointless war that it's leading up to. And and I didn't like it for that, that reason. Mm. Um, but there will be people that will enjoy it because there is some good action scenes. There is some good dialogue in there. There are some bad... There is some really bad dialogue in there as well. Um, one of the generals... Let me just uh, find it in my, in my paperwork. And he's not a general. He's a Lieutenant Colonel Bowers, he plays. Mm. And... I, I really hated him in this film. He added nothing to this film. He, you're so used to seeing him in all these comedy films that he just didn't play the straight-faced lieutenant very well at all. And I really didn't like him in it. Um, I mean, you've got Chris Hemsworth as Captain Mitch Nelson. Did a fair, fairly decent job. You, you said know. he was fundamentally just Thor, he, he? Yeah, he was, basically. You know, just without toned, a hammer. Toned down a little bit. Michael Shannon always good in the films that he's been in we've seen him in the shape of water he was great in that um you know he he was he was a fairly decent character in the film but still didn't really shape up to be much in the end um you know the the 12 the 12 uh american soldiers that were fighting you know 
fairly decently acted, but nothing to shout mm. shout about really. Um, if you ask me the question, yeah. Before before I ask, oh, ask you on, the question, I was just going to say, obviously, you described it as a bit of a pointless film for a pointless war. I think it's that's that's an, an interesting point um, because a lot of people say that it was a pointless war. I'm one of the people that says it wasn't a pointless war. Um, I'm not going to go into my personal beliefs of of why I think that. But, you know, you've got to remember that hundreds of British and American men and women lost their lives fighting what was fundamentally evil in the Middle East. Mm. And I, I do think... I haven't seen this film. I want to see this film because I'm intrigued to, to, see, to hear about the story. I do think stories like this should be told. Um... But yeah, I no, you're right. They do need to be told, but I think it's the timing of how when yeah. it's come out is poor. In the sense that it's when is a good time for a not not yet. I mean, when Donald Trump is now in power and and causing havoc, this is a, a an excuse to enrage more people, and uh, um, and I and it does a pretty good job of showing there is this still this war that's going on essentially so it sounds fundamentally like a bit of a pro-american shoot the bad guy kind of film absolutely yeah yeah so craig 12 strong is it worth it not for me it's not worth it but there are people that are going to really enjoy the action people are going to enjoy this sort of film it's worth going to see on the big screen you know you've got the loud explosions all that sort of stuff um yeah it's worth it for people like that but for for people who don't tend to like these sort of films for for the lefties for the lefties i suppose <laughs> for the vegans and the corbynistas ah, well <laughs> oh no i've offended vegans now now um it's not worth it cheers hello my name's paul newbegin and i host a podcast called the pass now what you're listening to is quality audio right now but if you're thinking to yourself Oh, I like people talking, chatting, generally dicking about, but I want a little spice of food thrown into the mix. Well, the part is for you, because we talk to the greatest chefs in the UK. Think Andrew Pern, Tom Aikins, Paul Ainsworth, Dan Doherty, all the names that you'll be familiar with on MasterChef, uh, Great British Menu, The Lot. Check out The Pass on iTunes, Acast, and anywhere else you get your lovely podcasts from. Cheers. Big kiss. So that was Paul Newbegin, creator of the podcast The Pass. Um, a fantastic podcast that uh, interviews a number of top UK chefs. So if you love your food, like Paul Newbegin, please do tune into The Pass. So we're going to go straight into the final review of the day, and that is The Greatest Showman. This is um, a really well-received film for the general public. Um, but as David's now going to summarise with his statistics from Rotten Tomatoes, there is a little bit of variance going so on. So this here. is a film that has divided opinion. So if you go on Rotten Tomatoes and you look at the reviews, 54% of critics like this film. Only 38% of top critics like it, but you compare that to the audience score, which is actually 90%. And I think those statistics show exactly what this film is. It is a crowd-pleaser, but fundamentally flawed from a critical perspective. And we're going to explain a little bit about why um, we, and obviously other people who review films, think this is a flawed film. But we're not denying that it, it, it's doing very well, and, and people are enjoying seeing it. Yeah. Um, I mean... 
if we just take it back a little bit, I came out of this film thinking that was all right. But then when you analyse it a little bit, there are flaws within this film. Um, the film is about Hugh Jackman's character, P.T. Barnum, who grows up with nothing. His dad is a tailor, um, but obviously not a very well-paid one. Um, they go to some big, uh, rich people's houses to, to, to clothe them, I suppose. Um, and on one of those journeys, um, P.T. Barnum falls in love with the daughter of one of his father's clients. Um, and... You know, there's there's a lot of music going on here. They and, and over the course of one song, you see them fall in love um, and write letters to each other, and uh, you know the the normal romantic thing that happens in some, in most of these films. Yeah, so P.T. Barnum's character is about eleven, twelve at this point. Um, the girl is sent off to finishing school. That's it. Yeah, and they are writing letters to and throw, and there's quite a a catchy song and it really sort of you start to build a bit of a relationship with these two characters so the start of the film does work well i mean yeah even the opening scene to the entire film it opens up with one of the biggest songs of the film that is really really good um we really enjoyed it we thought the opening was fantastic yeah the opening was very very solid um but what happens off that so what so what we have is we we see these two uh children fall in love and then we're sort of thrown forward what would you say 10 15 years yeah i think um, yeah, pete barnum has sort of made himself a bit wealthier he's got himself a decent job he's you know trying to win her heart and well i think he's already won her heart essentially yeah. Uh, but he needs to obviously provide for her and, and whatnot. Yeah, so uh, what we have is we have Hugh Jackman's character sort of rocking up to um, his childhood sweetheart's house, basically telling the father that he loves the daughter and that he will provide for her, and the father basically goes, ha, 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 you are wrong. But they skip off down the driveway together, and then we have some some really quite moving scenes where... We see the their two children. They have two girls, and they're living in pretty poor accommodation. But they love each other, and they love their children, and they don't have a lot. But what they do have, they share with each other, and it's it's quite nice. And that sort of sets us up for what's to follow, which is basically Hugh Jackman's character loses his job. Unlike Liam Neeson, he doesn't go mad and assault people <laughs> on, on a train. Um, but he decides to become a showman and try and do something a little bit different. So he opens his own museum um, where having got a loan from a bank in basically illegal circumstances, (laughs) but nevertheless he gets this loan and he fills this museum full of sort of giraffes and elephants and strange things and it flops a little bit. And then what he does is he thinks, well, after the advice of his two children, dad, we need... We need something in there that's alive. He starts recruiting what the film describes as freaks. So we have midgets, bearded ladies, um, a 10-foot Irishman who's not Irish. (laughs) um, And tickets start selling. And he starts to to build a reputation. He starts to um, become financially successful. And what we see is the birth, the origin of the circus. And that's where the film goes from. So P.T. Barnum's character has finally made it um, in the world. He's He's got a bit of money and he's done it through creating the circus. And he's done it through legitimate things really as well. And, you know, 
uh, Michelle Williams, we must talk about. She played Charity. Um, she was really, really great. Um, that's Petey Barnum's wife. Um, and the two kids as well. I thought they were really good. Yeah, the kids were fantastic. Um, and then we're introduced to Zac Efron's character as well, Philip. Um, yeah. You know, he's comes from a very wealthy background. He's more used to putting on shows in the theatre and, and appeals to the highbrow crowd. And, and this is where... P.T. Barnum wants to attract those kind of audiences in. Yeah. And, you know, for the most part, this is this is working. You know, this is this relationship here with Zac Efron's character, Philip, works as well. But then we tell we go a bit skip a bit further forwards and we start to fall apart a little bit, don't we? Mm. So. The 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 reason that the audience like this film is there's some some brilliant uh, cinematography. There's some. Some great scenes. There's some very, very good songs. Uh, this Is Me, which is nominated for Best Song at the Academy Awards, is a very catchy song. If you listen to that song, it's difficult not to get sort of pumped up and inspired. But I think the reason the critics don't like this film is, without going too much into the details, the very message of the film, the very heart of the film, is about being inclusive, that everyone is equal, that bearded women and midgets and 12-foot Irishmen, they're all equal and they're all deserving of a good life. And yes, fundamentally, as a, a good member of society, you would agree with that. But you can't help but overlook the fact that this is a story about the origins of the circus. And this paints a picture that these people are all being given a chance and are all happy, whereas in reality, were they? Was P.T. Barnum the all-inclusive, loving man that the film paints him out to be? Or was he actually just exploiting these people? And I think that's where the cracks start to emerge in this film. Because mm, they do somewhat touch upon it ever so slightly, but not in a way that really, I think, mm. is is truthful to how it actually happened at all, because they wanted to retain that feel-good, crowd-pleasing storyline. Yeah, and I don't want to say too much, because I do want people to go and see this in the cinema. I think it's worth it. But the fundamental foundations of what Hugh Jackman's character stands for, start to fall apart as the film progresses. And there's one distinct moment about halfway through the film where, for me, it really started to unravel. Um, like, I, like we've said, that doesn't mean that this isn't a good film because, fundamentally, it is a crowd-pleaser and it's, it's nice to watch. But it's just flawed. Um, mm. And when, when people watch it, they will see why we're saying it's flawed. Um, the very message... Um, but the, the, the introduction of Zac Efron's character is interesting and Zac Efron's very good in this film. Yeah, like you said, he, he plays a sort of a wealthy, um, playwright really, doesn't he? Mm. Who's putting productions on in the theater and people are basically turning up to watch these things in the theater, whether they're good or not, because it's what rich white folk do. And Hugh Jackman, manages to, in the form of song and dance and many shots of whiskey, <laughs> um, persuade Zac Efron to join the circus. And we see a, a lovely relationship blossom with Zac Efron and... Zendaya. Zendaya, who plays Anne Wheeler. Um, and there's a beautiful shot in the film where Anne Wheeler's on the trapeze and she comes up to Zac Efron and they put it into super slow motion and you see them look at each other and then just as the trapeze draws back, it goes back into full speed. That's very effective. Zac Efron can obviously sing. He can dance. He's eye candy for the ladies. Hugh Jackman, again, he can sing. He can dance. There's some very good songs in this. There's some very good scenes. 
and it is a crowd pleaser. But the script has holes in it. The plot is a little bit shaky. And it takes something that... Was it a good thing? Was the circus designed to make everyone feel equal and put on a show? Or was it more exploitive than this film leads on? And that's why I think the critics don't like this film as much as the audience. Because they're basically saying, yes, it's a happy, clappy sing-along. But you've taken something and put a really positive twist on it. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that, 100%. Um, So, is this film worth it? Yes, I would say that this is worth seeing in the cinema because it looks good on the big screen. There's some some really good songs. This is me. I must admit, I've played it a number of times in my own house and it is a very good song. Mm. Um, And the performances are good. Um, As as an overall film, it's a little bit flawed. Yeah. Would you go and see the sing-along? Well... Because this is triumphant in, in the sense that the, the box office... What word is... was that? Triumphant? I don't know. Did you mean triumphant? I did. I missed out the <laughs> T there. <laughs> um, no, I think it's doing very well at the box office and it's literally smashing it. You know, this mm. film's been out since the 26th of December. Yeah. Um, and, and it's still going and it's now reincarnated itself already in a sing-along version. Um, and it's now smashing it with that as well. Well, the interesting thing about the sing-along is it's not just selling out, you know, uh, Cineworld and Odeon theatres. It's selling out the O2. You know, Impressive. People are flocking to see this and sing along. Now, in my opinion, this that is my idea of hell. Because, mine too. because fundamentally you're just going to... I've said fundamentally again. No. Um, what you're going to have is a cinema full of people who want to be singers, who probably can't sing, trying to sing along to this film. And look, if I, I, I would not see this in a sing-along version if you haven't seen it before. But if you see the film and like it, then maybe go along and have a sing-song. But there's probably two or three songs that are worthy of singing along to. Some of them you just wouldn't be able to. I mean, that one with Hugh Jackman and Zac Efron, I can't see anyone singing along to that. No, I mean, people can clap along to that. Maybe, but... <laughs> maybe do some whiskey shots like they do. Oh, God, yeah. Look out for that scene. I, I mean, I reckon 20, 30 shots of whiskey each. Yeah, I think so. And then their singing and dancing is still very coordinated, so I'm assuming it wasn't actually whiskey they were on. But The Greatest Showman, um, a good film worth seeing um and maybe if you've had 20 shots of whiskey go to the sing-along Thank you very much for listening to Is It Worth It, the film review podcast with me, Craig Fields. And me, David Long. The podcast is available on most uh, podcasting services, i.e. iTunes, Outcast, RSS feeds, uh, all the one, big ones. You all know what they are if that's what you listen to them on. Um, what have we got coming up next week, David? <laughs> do you know what you've got coming up next week? <laughs> you don't know, do you? It's not on the screen. Ah, there, there it is, it is technology. Uh, next week, week three, we have The Phantom Thread with Daniel Day-Lewis, The Shape of Water, Maze Runner, The Death Cure, Winchester, and Den of Thieves. Hmm. It's going to be an interesting week next week. It is going to be an interesting week. Um, we've already seen The Shape of Water. We went to see it in a preview show, and that is going to be an interesting review, so really do make sure you listen in for that. 
Uh, we're both terrified about watching The Phantom Thread because it looks like a film that doesn't require sweets and fizzy pop. <laughs> it looks like the sort of film where you need to take a selection of smelly cheeses and cured meats and perhaps a, a, a flask of port because it looks very heavy. It does look like that sort of film, but we won't be taking any of those film those things in because, as you all know from my rant earlier on, we don't do food in the cinema. Craig do doesn't do fun. Well, you do. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you'd like to get in contact with us, please do email us at mymailisworthit at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at filmisworthit. And I'd like to take this moment to apologise to my best friend, Craig Fields, and co-presenter, who is in a bit of a bad mood because before recording today, I roasted him too much about his poo-coloured, rust-coloured jumper. It's not a poo-coloured jumper, it's orange. It's awful. It's orange. It looks... It's terrible, folks. Um, perhaps on our Twitter there might be a photo of it and... There you... is nothing wrong with this jumper. Even your mum said it was bad. No, she didn't. She didn't. It needs rust something. Rust. Something.